or eight years old, uh, walking home from primary school with my brother. We just had an assembly at school about Jesus. The local minister had come in and uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home at all. And we started arguing about how this Jesus guy healed so many people. How did he do it? And I came to the conclusion to my younger brother, who was naive and thought it was real, that Jesus was just a very smart guy. He had lots of kind of medicines up his sleeve that no one else had invented. He could kind of diagnose illnesses that no one had heard of yet. And he just convinced everyone he was the son of God because he was such a good doctor. And at seven or eight year old me, that was all I knew about Jesus. This guy healed people. It was the one thing I took away. He was a healer. He did these amazing miracles. I probably also knew he walked on water, but the healings of Jesus are the kind of most famous type of miracle that Jesus does in the Gospels. When we think about a miracle, we think about Jesus healing. They kind of captivate our imaginations, I think, because we ourselves feel the need to be healed. We don't feel the need to watch someone walk on water, but we do feel the need to be healed in our bodies. And so seven-year-old me, along with uh, many adults today, continue to wonder, how did this Jewish rabbi convince so many people? How did he fake these miracles if he faked them? How did he heal? Was it kind of sleight of hand? Was he a sort of early magician? Was it advanced knowledge? Was he just a good doctor? Or did he really have the power to heal people of diseases just by touching them, just by looking at them? Well, we come to a passage in John's Gospel that Esther just read for us where any account for how Jesus did this other than he's the Son of God is impossible to make fly. We have a story of Jesus healing a boy he has never even met. We have a story of Jesus just saying, yeah, 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 no, he, he's fine. And the boy's healed. And so it seems like a very simple story on the surface. In many ways it is. But I just want us to kind of draw out the kind of the depth of that reality. So I just want us to see two things as we go. First is the desperate faith of this boy's father. And how his faith changes as Jesus acts. But then most importantly, the healing power in the very voice of Jesus. The reality that Jesus speaks and healing comes. And so just to remind us, have a look with me at verses 46 to 49. John writes, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Okay, we have, we have two main characters in the story and they're doing very different things. Uh, John drops the piece of information that Jesus is back in Cana. And we're supposed to read that and think something miraculous is about to happen again. It's kind of a second bookmark to this big chunk of John's gospel that began with the first sign that Jesus did. You might remember at the wedding in Cana, he took water 
uh, and turned it into wine to supply enough for a wedding party that was running out. And now a few chapters later, John says, Jesus has returned to Cana. And we're supposed to be tipped off that something big is about to happen. We said a few weeks ago that Jesus had a kind of inward compulsion to go through Samaria and meet with the woman at the well. And if you, if you didn't see that, you would think Jesus' movements seem kind of random. He does something and then he says, oh, I'm actually going to go here now. And now I think I'll go to Cana. It's a random town in a backwater kind of province of Israel. In fact, in verse 44 that Esther didn't read, John reminds us that Jesus actually knew he wouldn't receive much faith in Galilee. John says, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Jesus knew. He went to Galilee. He knew there wasn't much fame waiting for him there. He knows. Everyone knows who I am. It's going to take a lot for them to believe that I'm actually the Messiah. And yet here he is, returning to Galilee, coming home again. And the reason why is that John wants us to see that Jesus again is inwardly led to the next spot in his ministry. He has another kind of date with destiny. He has another revelation of his glory that he has to bring about. And so Jesus arrives in Galilee and begins to make his way to Cana. Now, 15 miles from there in Capernaum, there's a government official, probably a wealthy man. We don't know his name, and his world is falling apart. You may know the feeling, personally, of watching somebody that you love die. If you have, you'll know the helplessness of that moment. You'll know the kind of desperation, the feeling of, I will do anything I can do to stop this from happening. Here's a man who's watching in real time as his son fades away. We can presume he's tried every medical avenue. He's prayed fervently to God. He's probably at the point where he needs to start thinking about funeral arrangements for his own son. Some of us know that agony. Know that kind of looming sense of darkness. That's where he's at when we pick up this story. So it's no wonder that when he hears that Jesus is nearby, he gets his walking boots on. Cana and Capernaum are about 15 miles apart. That is not a short walk. It's not a kind of, all right, I heard there's this healer doing this event tonight. I'll just drive around the corner and go see what happens. It's a day's journey. He has to get his shoes on. He has to leave his dying son in bed at home. He has to risk that he misses the death of his son, but he gets his shoes on and he begins to walk. He's probably heard about the wedding at Cana. Just a few towns over, a miracle man has turned water into wine. Some are saying that he's the one that God has sent to save his people. He's probably thinking it's worth a shot. It's worth a shot. I wonder how many of us first come to Jesus with it's worth a shot faith. Who else can I turn to? I have nothing left to try. 
<clears throat> this is my last attempt before I give up. And so I came to Jesus. Nothing left to do. Jesus, you're worth a try. Maybe it's physical healing or just a sense of hopelessness or the weight of sin. So many of us find ourselves thinking, Jesus is worth a try. I'm going to put my shoes on and I'm going to walk to Cana and I'm going to ask him for what I need. So he does that. He puts his shoes on. He begins to walk, not quite full of faith at all, but probably with anxiety in the pit of his stomach, with a million scenarios running through his mind, with no way to call home and see how his son is. 15-mile walk. I wonder how many times on that walk he thought, I'm just going to turn around and go home. I just want to be with my boy. I just want to see him one last time. I just want to hold his hand one last time. How many times did this man consider just giving up? But he keeps going. He keeps going and he finally makes it to Cana. And we see him, don't we, fall on his knees before Jesus and say, Lord, please, please come. My, my son is on death's door. Please do something. And the anticlimax kind of rips us out of the story a little bit. Jesus rebukes him. He says, please come and heal my son. Jesus says, you people will never believe unless you see a sign Jesus rebukes him because his faith is merely a kind of signs faith. It's a faith not in Jesus, but in the things that Jesus can offer him. Unless you people see signs and miracles, you will never believe. Don Carson says this. He writes, too much interest in raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. seems like not only this man, but the whole of Galilee, Jesus speaks not just to this one person. He says, you people, the whole of Galilee is far more interested in Jesus as a miracle worker than as the Messiah. Just like seven-year-old me, all they could think about Jesus was, oh, this guy can heal. All they knew about him was the cool tricks that he could do. We need to be very careful of what we could call signs faith. There's just a few of the things that are kind of part of this kind of faith that Jesus warns us about here. These three things should come up on the screen. The first one is that we love the giver for his gifts. Jesus' brother James later wrote that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So the question isn't, does God give us gifts? It's how do we relate to the gifts that God gives us? See, a kind of signs faith loves God and trusts Jesus only so far as they meet our needs. Augustine once wrote that, quote, he loves you too little, God, who loves anything together with you which he doesn't love for your sake. Do you understand what he's saying? Probably not. He means if you love something and you don't love it with the purpose of loving God through it, you love that thing far too much. The gifts that God gives us are designed to make us love 
the giver, not to love the gift. In other words, there is a very real kind of faith that will love God only until he stops being useful. There's a kind of faith that is more enamored with being part of a Christian community, getting emotional well-being from God, or experiencing spiritual highs than in the person of Jesus himself. Second, science faith sees miracles as a right. This is a repeated theme in the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 16, this wicked generation demands a sign. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. They're both saying in different ways that science faith sees miracles as the end goal of the spiritual life. Science faith lives in the presumption that God has to act according to our desires. Now, God does often act according to our desires. But miracles and signs of his glory are not a right that we have. There's a difference between having faith in God and presuming that God will give us what we want. Third, lastly, signs faith walks by sight. The one who has this kind of faith needs to see with their own two eyes before they'll believe. <clears throat> like the Apostle Thomas in John 20, this kind of faith says, unless I see the nail marks in your hands, I will never believe. This is the kind of faith that we've all witnessed. You know, you're speaking to a non-Christian friend. Perhaps you are a non-Christian and you've said this before. Look, if Jesus just came down and stood in front of me and made it obvious he was real, then I would become a Christian. That signs faith. The problem is that the Bible says the reason you don't have faith isn't a lack of evidence. The Bible says evidence isn't our problem at all, but our hardness of heart. To wait to see in order to believe is at best a terrible excuse. Science faith walks by sight, but notice this. Jesus responds to this half-hearted science faith with compassion. Please don't stop listening now because this is more important. Hear me loud and clear. If the heart of Jesus was kind of calloused or stuck up or prickly, then this would be the end of the story. Go and get good faith and then I'll heal your son. End of story. What happens next? But that is not the heart of Jesus. The heart of our Lord is not stuck up or prickly or calloused. He's compassionate. He's welcoming. He's welcoming. And so in verse 49, the, the official doesn't really care what Jesus has to say about miracles. Okay, just come and heal my son. Let's have this discussion later. Come and heal my son. You can imagine the heightened desperation in his voice. I've walked all this way and you're rebuking me. Please come. Come and heal my son. And you get the sense he still wants Jesus to come and do some kind of procedure. Come down to Capernaum and heal him. I don't know how you do it, but come and give him whatever medicine you have. Jesus' heart is not calloused to this man or his son's illness. In the very heart of Jesus is the compulsion to respond to this kind of desperate faith. 
even faith, as he says elsewhere, that is the size of a mustard seed. He can't help himself. It's the currency of God's kingdom. Faith. Even faith that doesn't really get it. Even faith that says nothing more than Jesus, please. Even faith that wants him for his gifts and not himself. He cannot help but respond to the cry of desperate faith that is the joy of his heart. Let's keep reading. Have a look at verse 50 and we'll see what happens next. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus' heart can't help but respond to this man's embryonic, half-hearted faith. He doesn't respond in the way that he wanted. The royal official asked Jesus to come, come and do something for me. Jesus responds by telling him to go. Go. Your son will live. For the first time in this passage, John describes the man as having an ounce of real faith. Verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word. He believed him. He looked Jesus in the eyes for probably 30 seconds. And he believed. He believed my son will be healed. What strikes me about this man's story is he had to take the return leg of this journey again. He had no assurance that this was real. He had no assurance that Jesus wasn't just trying to get rid of him. In fact, the length of the walk meant he had to stay somewhere overnight. If Jesus is a hoax, then he's lost more than a full 24 hours with his dying son. Just to be told to go home. And yet, he has faith. He just goes. With no indication in the passage that he's hesitant or afraid or even uncertain. He just goes. He believes Jesus' words and he leaves. And before he even gets home, you can imagine the scene. His servants are sprinting down the road to Cana, trying to find him on the journey. Your son is alive. He's well. He's healed. To them, it must have seemed crazy. One minute they are wiping his head with a cloth, trying to just keep his spirits up. And the next, he bounds out of bed full of life. What on earth happened? They don't know what to do. They they sprint down the road to find Jesus, to find this royal official. They can't wait to tell the official, but the official has even better news. The official can't wait to tell them why. He puts two and two together. The exact moment that Jesus said, your son will live, is the exact moment that his son was healed. Here's the punch of this story. Here's what should surprise us if we are not used to this Jesus character. 
this man, this carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, can heal without doing anything. To ancient Jews, there is no surprise that God can heal. There's a reason this man asks. In fact, there's no surprise that God could even heal through a human agent. But that human agent always healed by asking God for something. So Moses pleaded with God to heal his wife, and God did so. Hannah begs God to heal her infertility, and God answers her prayers. Elijah even raised someone from the dead, but he cried out to God and asked God to do it. Just notice this. Jesus doesn't pray in this passage. He doesn't ask God to do anything. He doesn't lay hands on the boy. He doesn't even lay eyes on him. He just speaks. Jesus is not like the prophets of the Old Testament. He doesn't kind of receive power from someone else so that he can heal. He himself is the one who gives the power to heal. He's the God of creation. He's the God who speaks and things come to pass. He's the one whose voice creates life and his voice ends life. His words heal and his words save. He doesn't perform rituals or ceremonies. He just speaks and everything changes. When Jesus speaks, things happen. When he says, be well, sickness flees. When he says, get out, demons run away scared. When he says, let there be light, there is light. When he says, your sins are forgiven, you can believe him. Because when he speaks, nobody contradicts him. Every single word that comes from the mouth of this Jesus comes to pass. He's not a prophet only kind of relaying the thoughts of God. He is God. He's the one who creates and heals with a word. He has all authority in heaven and on earth over sickness and death. So when he says your son will live, the demonic power of sickness flees with fear. The son of God just told me what to do. Nobody argues, nobody answers back. Your son will live and he lives. The royal official and all of his household stare the power and glory of Jesus in the face. And now they believe. Now they have true faith. The kind of signs faith, the desperation of this man's heart turns into something different at the end of our passage. Let's compare these two types of faith. Where science faith loves God for his gifts, true faith loves him through his gifts. A true faith receives the gift of God gladly, but true faith leads us to move very quickly past the gift to worship the giver. Let me put it this way. If you're an atheist and you go out for dinner and you enjoy a really phenomenal steak, and you just feel grateful, you feel glad, and you, you almost begin to praise. Your praise terminates on a piece of meat. If you're a Christian, you can truly savor the gifts of this world because your praise doesn't need to terminate on steak, but on God. You can say, that was so good. How, how good must the God be who gives these gifts every day? How good must this God be? He's the one who gives us every good 
gift and when our praise terminates through gifts onto God himself, we're able to love him whether he gives us gifts or not because we see that the gifts are not the thing worth praising, the giver is. We're able to become like Job, one of the oldest followers of God. In one of the oldest books in the Bible, he prayed this. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether he gives, whether he takes away, he is still a giver of good gifts. True faith loves God through his gift. Second, where signs faith sees miracles as a right, true faith sees miracles as revelation. For the one who has this real kind of faith, miracles are a glorious sign of the goodness and mercy of God. They're not something we can demand, but they're something that God graciously gives us to reveal himself to us. And so Jesus performed miracles not because he met someone that he felt really deserved it, not because anyone forced him, not because miracles are the whole point of this whole thing we call Christianity, but because in order to reveal his glory, he's gracious to sometimes give us a glimmer. That's exactly what Jesus does. He, he performs miracles to show us who he is. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, God testified to it, it being salvation in Jesus. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Notice that the miracles are not the thing being testified to. You're not supposed to be like seven-year-old me thinking, ah, yeah, this Jesus guy, he was the healer, right? No, Jesus is the Messiah who heals to reveal that he's the Messiah. We're to see the salvation we have in Jesus through the miracles God gives. We're not only to see the miracles. But miracles are also a revelation of the reality that miracles are just a foretaste. Let me quote to you from the theologian Jürgen Moltmann. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he's driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which these healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wicked. He's saying that our world is plagued by the unnatural forces of sin, death, and sickness. And that the healings of Jesus, they're not just a nice act. They're an appearing in the present day of a reality that will one day be true for everyone in the new creation. Maybe you've cried out to God for healing time and time and time again. We can imagine this man, he knows other people who have had children die. Some are healed, some are not. But either way, we know this. In the new creation, the gift of healing will be for everyone. In the new creation, sickness will have no more jurisdiction in the human heart, body, or mind. And for those with true faith, that is what makes miracles so breathtaking. Not because we're like, oh, our bodies are the most important thing and I really want to have a healthy body, but because through miracles we see the new creation bursting into the present day. 
one day by a word from Jesus' mouth, the whole world will be healed. I was reading recently uh, Thomas Aquinas writing about um, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And he asked the question, why does Jesus call Lazarus by name? He says, if he didn't call him by name, every dead person in the world would rise from their graves. And then he would have had a problem. One day, Jesus will not specify. He will just say, get up, live, rise. And you and I will rise from our graves. We will walk into life. Healing is not just a nice act God does today. It is a glimmer of a reality that we will all live in eternally. The word that Jesus uses when he says to this man, your son will live, the word for live is the word that John almost always reserves for eternal life. He could have used a different Greek word that just means kind of bodily life. He uses the word that means a kind of eternal, God-saturated, true spiritual life. It's as though Jesus is saying, hey, in my kindness, your son will live in this life. But through this miracle, he will see how he can live forever. One day. Third, where signs faith walks by sight, true faith walks by faith. We mentioned Thomas earlier, he had a kind of signs faith. Jesus was kind to let him put his fingers in his scars. But then Jesus says to him, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. True faith goes through life clinging not to the kind of next spectacular show of glory, not to the next spiritual high, but true faith goes through life clinging to the eternal, unchanging reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. This man has now seen and will walk by faith. We don't know whether he or his son will ever meet Jesus again. They can't cling to the next miraculous encounter. Here's what they can cling to. The knowledge that Jesus is the all-powerful one who saves and heals. In faith, this boy who never met Jesus, he just one day sat up in bed and his dad comes running in and says, that was Jesus. He is not any worse off than the dad because he didn't see, because he has faith. He can cling in faith to the reality that it was Jesus that healed him. It is Jesus who will one day heal us all. True faith walks by faith, not by sight. Here's what we want to do. We've seen that Jesus is the only one with authority to heal. He still is the only one with authority to heal. And many of us here today relate to this man living in the shadow of the reality of this fallen world. Whether it's scoliosis or depression or sciatica or a tumor, most of us feel the shadow of sin's reign in our bodies. We feel the sickness that is in this world. And we want to take Jesus at his word. We want to create space for you to receive prayer for the healing of your body and mind. Before we do that, our, pr our prayer team are 
ready and willing to pray with you for healing. But before we do that, I just want to sketch out for you a few principles from this story. How do we pray for healing? What do we know from this story about how we can pray for healing today? Very quickly, first, God cares about our physical condition. Jesus could have responded to this man by telling him to have better faith. He could have responded to him by just assuring him about the salvation of his soul and sending him on his way, but he doesn't. God cares deeply about our physical condition. Jesus could have revealed himself in so many different ways, but in the overflow of his compassion, he always and often chooses to meet us physically in our bodies. Sam Storms writes this. He says, the primary reason that God healed through Jesus prior to Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, was because he is a merciful, compassionate God. And the primary reason that God continues to heal after Pentecost is because he is a merciful, compassionate God. That means we approach God in prayer today. We don't need to figure out whether he cares. We don't say, well, Lord, if it's your will that you care about my body, he does care about your physical condition. He doesn't look on your suffering with disdain or indifference, but with compassion. And so the first step of having a kind of healing faith is to believe wholeheartedly Jesus desires, he cares about your physical body. Second, Jesus healed in response to faith. Almost every single incident of healing that occurs in the New Testament comes in response to a proactive step of faith from either the person needing healed or someone that loves them. Not every incident, but the vast majority come in response to faith. So we don't only have faith in his desire to heal, but in his ability to heal. James, again, writes that the one who asks God for something shouldn't do it doubting. Okay, tossed to and fro, he says, like a ship in the sea, but with faith, with assurance that God is able and he can and he cares. The kind of request that God loves to answer doesn't sound like this. Well, God, I'm not sure if you still heal today. I'm not really sure if you even want to. But if you're up for it, why not? That's not faith that Jesus is drawn towards. <laughs> faith that Jesus responds to says, God, you are able. If you will, make me well. Simple as that. If you will, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, make me well. Third, by the Spirit of God, we have access to the authority of Jesus. We need to be clear, only Jesus has the power to say something and it happens. Only he has direct authority over sickness and death. Any authority we have in prayer is borrowed from him. We have access by the Spirit to call upon the name of Jesus and tell sickness to leave. In his name, we can do these same kind of miracles. That's what Jesus meant when he said, pray for something in my name. He wasn't asking us to kind of just have a little ritual that we tag on to the end of our prayers. He was saying, I'm the only one that can fulfill anything you're asking for, so you better ask it in my name, because I'm the one with power. So when we come by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we have access to his authority. Jesus says in Mark 16, in my name they shall lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
It means that everyone in this room, if you believe in him, has access to the healing power of God by the Holy Spirit. Each one of us can lay hands on our neighbor and invite Jesus to invoke his authority against sickness. The gift is always subject to the wisdom and the will of God. Sometimes God doesn't desire to heal. There's no incantations, there's no magic prayers, but God loves to give his miraculous gifts to the church. He loves to pour his spirit out on us. He loves to reveal his glory to us as we invite him to do so in the name of Jesus. Last thing, healing glorifies the Trinitarian God. If we're to have the kind of true faith we've seen and not kind of signs faith, we need to see that healing today isn't designed just to draw us to healing. It's designed to draw us afresh to the throne of God. It's designed to fan the flames of our affection for Jesus this morning. So if by God's grace, and I believe he will, if by God's grace heals some or many this morning, let's allow that to draw us not into having a cool story, but into deeper worship, into a deeper life of joy in who he is. And the fact that our Father would give a gift like that to us. A word on this, maybe you're a non-Christian and you're thinking, I have a physical or a mental illness. Can I ask for prayer? We would love you to do that. And in fact, we believe Jesus can heal you. And if he does, remember it was Jesus who healed you. And he heals you to reveal his glory to you, not just so that you'll feel better tomorrow morning. All of this is to lead us to faith in Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Messiah who brings life and healing not only to our physical bodies, but to our souls as well. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Uh, We have a prayer team that are willing to pray for you. They're going to come and be right here in this kind of front area next to the kids sign. And sometimes we just like to invite invite you forward for prayer. We We tend to do it at the back, but... So there's something in the kind of faith that Jesus responds to. This man would walk 15 miles. We want to show that kind of faith by saying, I'll walk forward. I'll walk forward and trust God for physical healing. So if you, if you relate to that, you have a physical or mental, emotional wound that you would like healing for. I wonder who these guys would love to pray with you.